0: There. Literally, five people around the world are interested in hearing the sermon, so we want to turn on the, we want to turn on the recorder. Um, so I wasn't ready. I, I thought I was ready, but the Lord said, let's talk more about this. Let's talk more about the fact that I am God and I expect my people to live like I am God. That's really... What we've been talking about since uh, we reconvened after the holidays. If God is God, as we've been saying, if God is almighty, if God is sovereign, if God is good, if God is faithful, if God is trustworthy, then how should we then live? And we've been saying it with glad, reckless joy, obedience, right? That's a line that I've stolen from Oswald Chambers. It's one of my favorite things that a man has ever written. We talked about Joshua. We spent some time with Caleb. We looked at Gideon. We looked at Esther. We looked at Moses. All of these people knew that their God was God. And He had angels, angel armies at His command, right? <laughs> and so they did fearless things. They, they did courageous things. They were bold in the world. And I guess that's the challenge for you and me. You call yourself a Christian tonight? (laughs) Are you bold in the world? It's what Christians do. It's what disciples of Jesus do. We are bold in the world. Come what may, we are bold in the world. Real faith... As Sarah Groves sings, real faith, it always spills out. (laughs) If it's real, if it's real in you, it will spill out in your words, in your deeds, in your work, in your studies, in your leisure, obviously in the church, in the neighborhood, in your social gatherings. It spills out. It's conspicuous. Everybody knows you're a Christian, they can tell. They could tell, that guy belongs to Jesus, right? It's New Testament Christianity, isn't it? Isn't that what we see on the pages of Scripture? Let me begin tonight with two true stories, and I want you to tell me which one is the tragedy. The first story is this. I stole these stories from John Piper. I'm unashamedly stole these two stories from his book, Don't. Uh, waste Your Life, so the young adults... We studied this book a year or so ago, so the young adults will probably be familiar with these, studies, with these, with these stories. First story, April 2000. Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, Africa as they were on their medical rounds. Their breaks uh, failed, and they went over a cliff and died instantly. Now, they'd spent a large part of their life they were, by the way, they were, their, they were in their mid-80s when this happened. They'd spent a large part of their life proclaiming the name of Jesus and serving the poor with their medical expertise. That's the first story. Is it a tragedy? The second story, February 1998, the Joneses, a couple in north, northeastern U.S., they, they took early retirement. One was 51, one was 59, They cashed in, moved to Florida, and were having a good time. They spent their days cruising on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball, and collecting seashells. Is that a tragedy? Now, I know if we stop 100 people on the street and put this question to them, (laughs) 99 of them would say, man, that first story is a tragedy but if we ran into the Apostle Paul or someone like him, he'd say, man, that second story is a tragedy. That second story is the tragedy. That these people would give themselves to such small things. Such small, insignificant things. They would spend the last years of their life with small and insignificant things instead of making much of Jesus. John Piper writes about these two stories. First, he writes about the two missionaries who perished in the crash. These two lives were driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus. Now, isn't that a life well spent? Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles, their lives and their deaths were not a tragedy, but a glory to Jesus Christ. When Piper read that second story about the Joneses who retired simply to enjoy themselves for the last 20 or 30 years of their life, he thought it was a spoof. He thought it was, you know, a, 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 a spoof on the American dream. He saw this story in Reader's Digest. This is what he writes Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this playing softball and collecting shells. Picture this couple before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Look, Lord! What does He say? See my shells? Some of you young adults will remember that. Do you see the tragedy in it? Why? I say it to you, I think almost every week, especially in this series. Why are you still breathing God's air, eating God's food, and walking on God's earth? Why has He left you here? It would be very much better to be with Christ... Everything would be better to be with Christ. Why has He left you here? Someone tell me. To play softball, to go sailing, and collect seashells. Well, that's okay if we do those things. Those can be innocent things, but we're certainly not going to give our life to that, right? We're here to make much of Jesus Christ. We are His disciples. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And how did Jesus live Sacrificially, to make much of the Father. Let me ask you, are you following Christ? Or are you merely a churchgoer? I think that second life is a tragedy. Paul really understood why he was here. I guess I'm going to ask you, do you really understand why you are here still? Do you really understand? And are you living like you understand? Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you flip over, in this book to Philippians 3, 8, Paul says, all things are rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Comparatively speaking, it's rubbish compared to Him, compared to knowing Him, compared to walking with Him, compared to honoring Him and obeying Him and making much of Him and magnifying Him in the world. Compared to that... And we know Paul was pretty high on the food chain in Jerusalem. He said, compared to, compare to Jesus, it's all. Well, we know, what the, we know what the literal translation is. He says it's dung. It, it was, it's dung compared to Jesus Christ. This is what he had to say. Paul knew that everything is about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. I tell you all the time. It's, not. it's about someone interest, uh, infinitely more interesting than you. It's about Christ, right? You know, I love to say it this way. Um, the microscopic creature under the rock in the deepest part and blackest part of the ocean. That's about Jesus Christ. The asteroid on the farthest side of the galaxy. That's about Jesus Christ. And of course, you're in there between those two things. Your life, as we talked about last week, it's all about Jesus Christ. Your soul, your life, your body, your sexuality, your singleness, your marriage, your kids, your career, your money, your plans, your dreams, your leisure, your trials, your pain, your sicknesses, and even your death are all meant to be for the glory of God. Is that how you prosecute life, beloved? Is that how you navigate life? It's a hard day, Jim. I'm having a hard day today. Somehow I'll glorify Christ in it, right? I'm having a blessed day, Jim. It's a great day. Yes, and I will praise my great God. You know, as I've been saying, I'm real enamored with this thought that Karen read to me from a book that she's been reading recently. You know, I think I've shared it with you before, but you know, we don't really have the the, the wisdom to, to discern between a good day and a bad day. We really don't. So I'm really careful saying, well, that was a good day, that was a bad day. Because even on your worst day, God is doing something awesome. He's told us that this is true. So I've stopped using that kind of talk. Last week we we touched on, as we looked at the life of Moses, what is the dividend of glorifying God in our lives as we obey the Lord? Anybody remember? What is the the dividend or or the overflow that we experience when we give ourselves over to obedience to Jesus Christ. Moses was glorifying God in his obedience as God crushed Egypt. And in his obedience, Moses experienced the joy of God's glory in his life. You remember we made much of this. As God continually disclosed Himself to Moses. This is a huge theological point that I don't think Very many Christians understand when God is pursuing His glory through our obedience, God is pursuing our joy through His glory. Do you understand? You need to understand this. You need to be motivated by this. I'm going to repeat that. When God is pursuing His glory through your obedience, which He's always doing, You're supposed to be making much of Jesus in your obedience. The world is supposed to see you make much of Jesus in your obedience. When God is pursuing His glory through your obedience, God is pursuing your joy through that glory. We saw it in Moses' life. We've seen it in Abraham's life. God just comes to his people, his obedient people. God just keeps coming with that disclosure, John 14:21. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will come to you and I will disclose myself to you. I live for that disclosure, beloved. Keep your religion, I'm not interested. <laughs> Man, I want to walk with God, right? I want to know God. I don't care about your dogma. I don't, I don't care about your rituals. I don't care about your sacraments. I want to know God. Like Moses last week. God, show me Your glory. Right? Show me Your glory. How do you see the glory of God, beloved? How do you see the glory of God? It's manifold. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous, right? It's, It's omnipresent. But how do you see more of God's glory? In your obedience. In your obedience. And the more costly it is, the more uncomfortable it is, the harder it is, the more joy you get as God comes and reveals Himself to you. Expanding joy in God is found in glad, reckless joy, obedience. I want to challenge you. I hope you take this away from this mini-series. I hope you will never settle for anything less than all the joy God has intended for you to have. And of course, the only way you can experience that joy, the fullness of God's joy, is to walk with Him in obedience. Even when it's costly, even when it's risky, even when it's hard. What I want for you, and what I want for me, is expanding joy in God. And it's, it's not hard, beloved. It's not rocket science. Obey. <laughs> Obey. Obey, God. It's why Joshua and Caleb and Gideon and Esther and Moses and Paul lived the way they lived. They knew that ultimately it was all about God. They knew it was all about His glory. And they knew that His glory was their ultimate joy. It's what the maturing Christian comes to understand. This is how God has hardwired the human soul. You must have God. You must have God. And the regenerate human soul, you must have more of God. <laughs> I must have more. I need, Show me your glory, Lord. Moses, as we said, we made the point, Moses had seen more of God than any human being who'd ever walked the face of the earth post-fall. I'm sure Adam saw some things. Adam and Eve saw some things that Moses didn't see. And he knew he hadn't seen anything yet. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And I challenged you last week, let that be your prayer, beloved. Let that be your prayer. Lord, show me your glory. Good day, hard day. Show me your glory in it, Lord. Lord, it's the privilege of being a Christian, (laughs) to discover God's joy every day. Every single day. Oh, you want to surf the Internet? The, the, The Internet's more interesting than looking at Jesus Christ? Nothing wrong with being on the Internet. But are you spending an inordinate amount of time? Everything in its proper measure Beloved, I'm challenging you to look at God. I'm challenging you to give significant parts of your day. Look at God. Look at God. I've said it a hundred times from this pulpit. I'm going to say it again tonight. Jesus Christ is better than anything life can give. And Jesus Christ is better than anything death can take. This is what Paul understood. I pray that you and I are also understanding These realities. Verse 19, Philippians chapter 1. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. I like verse 19. He says, For I know. So We've heard this before, right? <laughs> we've heard this before. We know that Paul wrote Romans several years before he wrote Philippians. And we, we make much in this church of Romans 8.28. Someone tell me what it says. We, we know. We don't hope. We don't theorize. We don't postulate. We know that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to, pur- to His purpose. Paul says we know that. I love what he says here. He says, I know that this will be for my deliverance. I'm in prison. People are slandering me on the outside and I may get my head chopped off any minute, <laughs> but this is for my good. I know. If you look at the word deliverance there, it's the word for salvation. Really inferred there is whether I'm temporally delivered or not, I have my deliverance. My ultimate deliverance in Jesus Christ. Essentially, Paul is saying here in verses 19 and 20, I know this will work out for the glory of God and oh, by the way, for my joy. You know, it's just always there. Read your Bibles. The the joy of God's people, it's always there. It's always there in the wake of the glory of God. It's always there. It's always there. Paul says, whether I live or whether I die, I'm going to be delivered. (laughs) Jesus Christ is my deliverer. I will be delivered. Paul says, God is God and I'm not. Paul says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Paul says, whether He saves my life or He does not, I will be delivered. Let me quote John Piper again. Real faith is utterly in love with all that God will be for us beyond the grave. Real faith loves God more than family, more than job, more than money, more than dream houses, more than retirement. Real faith loves God more than life. Real faith says whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love Him. He is my reward. I think maybe this is one of the key points in our unplanned sermon series that we would know this in our hearts and that we would own this. Paul knows that his deliverance is sure. He's content in the providence of God whether he dies today or not. Don't you love it? Do you know God like that? Are you so full of Jesus? It doesn't really matter if I die today. To live is Christ. To live is I'll make much of Jesus. To die is to be with Jesus. Beloved, this is how disciples think. This is how we're supposed to think Paul says no matter what, whether life or death, I love Him. I love Him. I'll make much of Him here if it's His good pleasure to leave me here. And I'll be with Him there if my day has come. Some would say Paul is imprudent, he's reckless, he's careless. No, he's just just a man in love with Jesus Christ.
1: He's a man in love,
0: right? That's what you are. You're a Christian. You're in love. You can't help it. You love Him. You know, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line for every Christian. I love this great God. I love Him. Paul obviously did. So Paul trusts the promises of God. And then he says, did you notice? He says, I see uh, I, my deliverance will come through your prayer. So he, he, he's applauding the Philippians for praying for him. And this is part of the assurance that the, you know, the, the disciple has as we go with, with God into risky obedience. We are in intimate communication with God through prayer. Amen? You know, we're walking with God to such a degree that I can't just roll out of bed and do this thing called life brain dead. I must have the presence and power of God in my life or I can't live like this. Right? That's what Paul's saying. So we have this great assurance, this thing called prayer, which is not a matter of convenience for any real Christian. It's a matter of necessity. I must cry out to God. I must have God. I can't do what God's calling me to do. We've seen it over and over and over in this series. None of these men and women could actually do in their own strength what God had called them to do. (laughs) But they could do it through Him. Or he could do it through them, excuse me. He could do it through them. So, just a few brief comments about prayer. God insists that his people pray, and he insists on answering. I love that Proverbs 15 8 text. You know, Not only is it God's will for you to pray, it is His delight for you to pray. Proverbs 15.8 The prayer of the upright is is my delight, the Lord says. I love how one commentator talks about the impatience of God for you to cry out to Him. Isaiah 65.24 God says it will come to pass that before they call my name, someone tell me how that ends. I will answer. God's expecting to hear from you. He's expecting you to come to Him and say, Lord, I can't do what You've put in front of me to do. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my family. I simply don't have the resources to do that. It's too costly. It's too risky. He wants you to come talk to Him about it. And then He's going to say what He said to Moses last week. I'm God! (laughs) Right? I am! You're worried about a job? I am! I'll get you another job. I can give testimony to this one. (laughs) He'll give you another job if you need a job. He's I Am. He does whatever He pleases in heaven and earth. You remember the promises of Jesus in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and someone tell me what will happen. Seek and what will happen. Knock and what will happen? It's one of my FAQs as a pastor. If God is sovereign, why should we pray? If God has ordained all things, why should we pray? Well, first and foremost, we're commanded to pray. God doesn't need you to pray. But God has invited you into intimate fellowship with Himself. I think prayer is perfect worship. It's acknowledging our impotence and crying out to the omnipotent one this is the proper relationship between a creature and their creator i love ezekiel 36 god talks about all the blessings he's going to give to israel i won't go into detail you can go read the chapter for yourself the lord says i have spoken and i will do it but then he says this i will have the house of israel ask me to do it for them do you understand Prayer is God's means through which He works His sovereign purpose in your life. God ordains the ends, but He also ordains the means. And prayer is one of them for you and for me. God says, I'm going to let My people ask Me to do it for them so they'll know I'm a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. We've been talking about you know, doing hard stuff. Hard providence... We've been talking about hard obedience and hard providence. You can do it, beloved. Whatever God puts in front of you, you can do it because you belong to Jehovah Jireh. You belong to the I will see to it God. He knows what to do with the impossible, right? He knows what to do with the impossible. Paul gets it. He knows that God is going to be at work through His people's prayer. His deliverance will come through prayer. Whether it's temporal or eternal. Right? Paul doesn't name it and claim it. He doesn't dictate to God in prayer. He cries out to God and leaves it to God to be God and do what God knows is best. Right? (laughs) Amen. This is what prayer is. It's crying out to Him and submitting my life and and all that i am and all that i have to this great and awesome and beautiful god so paul lives trusting god's promises he lives trusting in the perfect answers god's perfect answers to prayer lastly there in verse 19 he lives trusting in the holy spirit god has given you everything you need beloved To be a radical disciple. To do the glad, reckless, joy, obedience thing. For greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Yes, Satan is out to get you. He's like a roaring lion roaming the planet to find out who he may devour. He's not interested in unbelievers. They're already in his camp. He wants you, and if he could kill you today, he would do it. But oh, guess what? Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Your God is God, and you can't go out one day sooner than God has ordained. Psalm 136, I believe. Jesus, you remember what Jesus said? We were studying this in men's Bible study. What Jesus said to the men the night before the cross, He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go. Because if I go, I will send a helper, and he will come to you. He will abide with you. He will be in you. He will teach you all things. He will disclose all that is mine to you. I'm always amazed at how unamazed Christians are. (laughs) And how God has endowed us and enabled us and empowered us. And how small we live our faith with all this infinite power at our disposal. He does expect His people to turn the world upside down. He expects it. He expects it. In your orbit, He may call you out of your orbit. I've experienced this too. But while you're in this orbit, turn this orbit upside down for the glory of Jesus. He expects you to do it, beloved. That's why He's left you here. You've got stuff to do. I've got stuff to do. All the seemingly impossible things God calls His children to do, we can do because He's God and His Spirit is in us. This is an amazing thing. (laughs) This is a worship provoking and amazing thing. So, in this sermon series, we've looked, as I said earlier, we've looked at hard obedience, Gideon, for example, Moses, for example, and we've looked at hard providence as we looked at the book of Job. Paul's in the middle of both. He's in the middle of both of those circumstances right now. And it made me think of that curious thing that God says in James chapter 1, verse 2. I think we've talked about it already in this series. God says, count it all joy when the trial comes. Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse like this: Consider it a sheer gift, and te- uh, when tests and challenges come, beloved, God's calling you not to the natural human response. You know, the natural human response for Paul is to wring his hands, is to whine, to feel sorry for himself. You know, to try to garner everyone's pity. That's the natural human response. God's called you to a supernatural response. In the hard obedience and in the hard providence, He's called you to a supernatural response to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'll make much of Jesus in this trial. I'll magnify the, the, the great name of Jesus in this trial. Your friends are supposed to see you magnify Jesus in the trial. Your friends are supposed to see you get fired and magnify Jesus in it. Fill in the blank. Whatever your situation is, (laughs) magnify Jesus in it. We don't do things carelessly. But in prayer, if God is calling us to do a thing, we do it. And we do it courageously, and we do it fearlessly, and we do it boldly. As Paul is showing us here, Yeah, he's in prison. He's being slandered. He might get martyred pretty soon. He says, man to live as Christ to die is gay. <laughs> oh, how can you not love this verse? You know, it's what we've said so many times. Um, Christianity is not an academic exercise. While most who call themselves Christians live as if it's you know, hypothetical, it's not. In reality, it's not. I love what Paul says here in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He wants to be bold for Christ in life or he wants to be bold for Christ in death. He wants Christ to be exalted in life and he wants Christ to be exalted in death. This is who Paul is. And I'm challenging you that you need to be thinking like this too. I need to be thinking like this as well. Paul understood the purpose for which he was created and redeemed to bring much glory to the name of Jesus Christ, and everything else is subordinate to that. Everything. Paul understood that when God is most glorified in Paul, Paul is most satisfied in God. We could say it like this. When we choose to maximize Christ's glory in our lives, we will taste and experience the very joy of God. As that great runner Eric Little said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. That's a perfect spiritual metaphor. When you obey Christ, you will feel the pleasure of God. You will feel the pleasure of God. Let's finish up here. Verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As I said to you earlier, this is biblical Christianity to me. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. Let me just ask you, is Philippians one twenty-one? is it true for you? Is Christ your preeminent, your primary, and your principal pursuit? Let's just do it this way. What if we took the word Christ out of Philippians one twenty-one? we leave it blank. What would your spouse write in there about you? What would your children write in that space about you? What would your best friend write? Your colleagues? Your fellow students at the university? What would they write in there about you? Would they write money? Would they write prestige? Would they write ambition? Success? Career? Family? Spouse? What would they write? Listen, if, they write, if you would write anything other than Jesus, death will be lost for you. If you have to write anything other than Jesus Christ in that blank spot, death will be lost for you. But if you can happily and joyfully write Jesus, if you can con- concur with Paul, death will be infinite gain for you. That takes us back to where we started. You see why Ruby and Laura's deaths were not a tragedy? Do you see why the Joneses' retirement was? how they spent that retirement. There's nothing wrong with retiring. That's not my point. My point is, beloved, we are disciples. We are sons and daughters of God. We are not here to give ourselves to to trifles. We are not here principally to pursue comfort and ease and entertainment. That's not who the real Christian is. The Joneses would have to confess that their life was about Temporal pleasure. Temporal ease. And death will be lost for them. But Ruby and Laura understood the Philippians one twenty one thing. They spent their whole life writing Jesus in that blank. To live is Jesus! Right? To live is Jesus! I'm in my mid-eighties! I'm, I'm an American in Africa! Serving the poor, loving the poor, sharing the truth of Jesus with them. Right? (laughs) Yeah, I should be back in the States having fun with my friends. Can you imagine the homecoming? (laughs) When they woke up in the arms of Jesus Christ, in His embrace, feeling His arms around them, seeing his bright and incandescent smile, saying, well done! I know I'm jazzed up. Well done, Ruby. Well done, Laura. Thank you for making much of me in the world enter into my rest. Enter into my glory. <laughs> Can't you imagine? Whew. Piper calls Philippians 121 a tsunami verse. He's right. You either love it or you don't like it. You either, you know, you either, you, you either love it or you're a little bit afraid of it. If you're a little bit afraid of it, I want to I encourage you tonight. Believe that your God is God and go do it. Are you afraid? Let me know. I'll pray for you. I'm afraid too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Lord calls us to stuff. I'm afraid to. But you know, when you're afraid, you just got to look at God, right? You just got to look at God. So I pray everyone in this room tonight will really get and really love Philippians 121. I pray that we will go out in the world and live it because it is deliciously true. To live is all about the joy of walking with Jesus. And to die is about the joy of being with Jesus. This is what every born-again believer knows. The challenge for you and I is to live it. That's the challenge we have. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight.